This is a HeadGum Podcast. Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Vulture Senior Editor, Jesse David Fox. How are you? Oh, all right. So this week we wanted to give you a little something different in our continued mission to open up the world behind what we all find funny. At Vulture Fest LA last fall, we had Vulture invited Mike Schur and the rest of the writers of The Good Place for a panel discussion. The panel was confidently moderated by Mark Evan Jackson, the host of The Good Place podcast, who you might also know from playing Sean the Demon on The Good Place, and Halt's husband Kevin on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, or like a million other parts here and there. There was just so much interesting, funny stuff that I felt like the listeners of this podcast would enjoy hearing it. Uh, at minimum, both Good Place and Good One have good in the title, which um, is not nothing. So first you'll hear a clip from this past season of The Good Place, and let's just have a blanket spoiler alert for anyone who's not caught up, in which Michael, played by Ted Danson, and Janet, played by Darcy Carden, explain how time works in this universe in a way that is a bit like uh, how you'd write Jeremy Baramy in cursive. Uh, for fans of the show, they know exactly what I'm talking about. For not fans of the show, you are very confused. We'll be back next week with a traditional episode with a great joke and a great comedian. But until then, I turn it over to Mark. Well, this sucks. So, to sum up, there is a heaven in hell. We've been to hell. And now, no matter how good we are for the rest of our lives, we're going back to hell. Again, it's not the classic Christian hell, but that's the gist, yes. As soon as you learned about the afterlife, your motivation to be good was corrupted, so you can't earn points anymore. So sorry for eternally dooming you. And that's our bad, guys. So all the attempts you made to torture us, we must have been in the afterlife for a hundred years. Almost 300, actually. Well, how is it possible that all these things happened to us but no time passed on Earth? Did you go back in time to save us? Uh, I didn't have to because of Jeremy Barramy. Who's Jeremy Barramy? Okay. Things in the afterlife don't happen while things are happening here. Because while time on Earth moves in a straight line, one thing happens, then the next, then the next. Time in the afterlife moves in a Jeremy Baramy. What? In the afterlife, time doubles back and loops around and ends up looking something like Jeremy Baramy. This is the timeline in the afterlife happens to kind of look like the name Jeremy Barramy in cursive English, so that's what we call it. Sorry, I'm, my brain is melting. How can events happen before the ones that happened before? Just the way it works. It's, it's Jeremy Barramy. I don't know what to tell you. That's the easiest way to describe it. Okay, but um, what the hell is this? The dot over the eye. The hell is that? Okay. Um, how do I explain this concisely? This is Tuesdays and also July. And sometimes it's never. That's true. Occasionally, that moment on the Barami timeline is the time moment when nothing never occurs. So, you get it. This broke me. Uh, the dot over the eye. That broke me. I'm. I'm done.
You know what? I'm glad this whole thing happened because now I can go back to living my life the way I used to, only caring about myself because being good is pointless. No, no, uh, please, Eleanor. No, thank you. I'm Audi. See you in hell. And I just realized I always say that when leaving a room, but right now it's accurate. I will literally see all of you in hell. Not if I see you first. Let's go, Jason. No, no, look, look, you guys, this is not over. We have to stay together. Look, we'll figure something out. Like, just one idea I had, I could kill all of you. That's my birthday. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Good Place Writers panel. Uh, any questions? Uh, we are going to uh, talk amongst ourselves for a little bit, and uh, then we're going to take some questions for you, from you. Um, it's tempting to introduce this evening's panelists as the most talented, most intelligent, funniest writers, um, but somehow even that cheapens who they are and what they've accomplished together. And I don't want to objectify them that way. So well, I guess let me just say, Please welcome my hottest friends, Mike Shore, Megan Amram, Jen Statsky, Josh Siegel, Dylan Morgan, Matt Murray, Cord Jefferson, Cassia Miller, Dan Schofield, Andrew Law, Christopher Ensel, and Ray Sani. Um, welcome you all. Thank you so much for being here this evening. I want to start out by saying uh, that a recent episode, the episode that just aired Thursday, uh, included in that episode were visual references to several different things, including uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the television show Lost, as well as John Wick. And uh, I guess I'd like to go down the line and start by asking each of you, what was some of your early influence in comedy? What, what were your favorite movies or television shows growing up? What were the things that made you say, oh, I want to go into this? Ray Sunny. Down the line, over here. Towards uh, me. Everything ends with me. Oh, all right. So I started out as a stand-up comic, um, so my influence was that. What happened was my brother and I were terrible children looking for porn in our parents' video cabinet. <laughs> we found a VHS tape that said raw on it. <laughs> <laughs> And it wasn't what we was looking for. But I fell in love with stand-up comedy because my porn surges took me to Eddie Murphy. And then, obviously, <laughs> everything after that. You know, every Chappelle show was the thing when I was in high school. And that was... Eddie Murphy taught me what stand-up was, and Dave Chappelle made me want to do it and see what I could make on TV. And so that's where that came from. Very cool. Uh, hi, uh, mine's way less porny, but uh, uh, dozens of TV shows, but the movie Big uh, always really inspired me because as a kid, I always wanted to be much older than I was, and now that I'm an adult, I guess I want to be much older still, so like, oh, yeah. That was unexpected. I think yeah. everyone here. <laughs> uh, anyway, You want to so, be dead. Is yeah, it? yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Um, so yeah, the movie Big, great. Um, the first TV show that I remember like really being obsessed with was News Radio. Um, I like watched every episode multiple times, and then I uh, used to like record them onto like a VHS. And then as soon as I had finished doing that, they released like the DVD, and I was like, <laughs> "Why did I do that?" Um, but uh, like the first um, 
show that I remember like really being obsessed with the mythology and like reading every recap, which I think um, thankfully a lot of fans do for this show is uh, lost. I was like totally obsessed and would just like go online the next day and try to find all the Easter eggs. Um, so I guess it makes sense that this last episode that aired, um, I got to rip off some of it. <laughs> Uh, I was also a kid who... I'm sorry, Dan Schofield, if you could, uh, you, every time you speak today, if you could speak as Sean. Dan Schofield does a Sean impression. It's worth it. No. When we have read-throughs and Mark can't be at the read-through, we get Dan to read Mark's parts because Dan's natural speaking voice sounds a little like Mark, and Mark is now obsessed with making Dan talk like him. It's like the ultimate ego trip where Mark is like... It's the only reason I'm here tonight. Talk like me. <laughs> but I'm not nearly as naughty a bitch as you are. Oh. <laughs> you can use your own voice. Oh, thank you. Um, I, I was also someone who, who taped a lot of shows off TV. My parents wouldn't let me watch a lot of TV, so I had to go for maximum efficiency. Um, I would tape a lot of The Simpsons. Uh, I taped a lot of Northern Exposure. Um, and that was one that, um, as it sort of got into questionable quality in its later uh, seasons. It, that was one of the first times that I realized that like, people wrote television shows and, and that it was like a job that existed in the world. And so that, that was a moment that sort of uh, clicked for me with that show, which was, oh, well, people get to do this. People get to make up these stories I love. Um, I guess I'll be the first one to be basic and say SNL. <laughs> um, I used to, uh, my mom always watched it in the kitchen and I used to just sneak down after my bedtime and as long as we didn't make eye contact, I was like allowed to stay and watch. <laughs> and so I just remember being like on the hard kitchen chair, just like not moving but watching SNL with her. Um, so I loved that and then I also loved um, the Golden Girls and... Um, are you being served? We had oh, four sure. channels growing up, so that was another one of my favorite shows. I was indoctrinated from a very early age by my father's taste in comedy, and so I remember a lot of like Richard Pryor vinyl records and George Carlin and Bob Newhart. Uh, those were sort of like on regular rotation in, in, my, in my living room when I was growing up. But the, it was always fine. I was like, okay, this is, I guess, kind of interesting. I, I, George Carlin kind of missed me. I, I sort of, I, I think he thought he was brilliant. But for me, the things that... Did you say, I think he thought he was brilliant? Is that what you said? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, my, my dad really did think that... I listened to, like, the Seven Dirty Words thing, and it doesn't, it doesn't resonate with me the way I did with my father. Uh, maybe it's a generational thing. But the first thing that I can remember seeing that, like really felt important to me was The Simpsons. That was sort of like something that I came to on my... That's a, <laughs> all right, huge. The Simpsons are here. <laughs> I, I, don't, I think that's a pretty common opinion, but yeah. Uh, um, but The Simpsons for me was something that I found on my own that my parents both hated and disliked, and so it was... Uh, but I sort of... Um, I sort of glommed onto it very early on, and then... Uh, the second thing was probably Seinfeld. Seinfeld was like the first adult show that I remember watching and liking and feeling like, oh, this is highbrow. I'm, I'm, I, like, I understand this. Like, I, this is like sophisticated New York comedy. And I was like growing up in Tucson, Arizona. Where we know what you mean by New York <laughs> New York comedy. <laughs> yeah, we get it. We, we get, get it. Cord. Oh, we get it. Classic chord. Um, I guess William Shakespeare. <laughs> No. Uh, I, I remember also watching with my dad uh, being like seven or eight and being able to stay up late to watch Monty Python. And, oh, yeah. And like not understanding 
any of it at all, but my dad laughing really hard, so I was like, yeah, this is funny. Um, and yeah, but then eventually I started getting it when I was like 20. <laughs> that was a grenade. That took a second to be like, 20. Honestly, the question makes me a little nervous because this is sort of an ageist profession and you age out of it pretty fast. Um, anyway, uh, I guess like Digimon and Dragon Ball Z. Yeah, like... <laughs> The worst. <laughs> Shut up, Glenn. I, I, until you said that, I didn't realize that sensation I was feeling, which was that I'm a million. <laughs> uh, but I want to, uh, cheers. Cheers was a big deal for me growing up. Oh, a smattering of applause. <laughs> Uh, You're like saying cheers to the. What are you saying? Oh no! <laughs> see, this is the this is the problem with these young people. Yeah. No, it was a show. You'll look it up. It's okay. Good. <laughs> um, my parents didn't pay a lot of attention to me growing up, uh, so I should have been looking for porn, and I'm realizing it was a missed opportunity. Yeah, girl. Uh, but Mary Tyler Moore show was like oh, a yeah. huge influence for me. Wow, more than Cheers. Sorry, Josh. You're such a feminist, Jen. Oh, and Megan Amram's Twitter. Yeah. A huge influence. It's awesome for Jen that she gets to work with her hero. Um, Jen and I aren't allowed to sit next to each other at I was going to bring this up. So. This is true. We, we, Mike, are you okay with this? Yeah. We're not allowed to sit next to each other <laughs> yeah. in the writer's room, so this is what amazing. A, what a pleasure. This is huge. <laughs> Truly, a Sunday night with my best friend. <laughs> Sunday night with my hero. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, my comedic influences, everyone else took my bits already, so I guess I, I'm just sort of like a weirdo, so I really loved The Simpsons growing up. Um, it was really influential to me. But I also really loved, I was like equally obsessed with The Simpsons and The Twilight Zone, so this is like an amazing show to get to work on because it's kind of bridging the gap. Thanks, Jen. The problem with being on a panel this size is when you go last, everyone has taken your answers. And it's not only that everyone took the answers, but I was going to do Murray's bit. I was going to do Murray's bit. <laughs> I was going to say, like, the works of Charles Dickens or I something. I was going to say the Bible. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> the two funniest uh, books, yeah. Yeah. Charles Dickens and the Bible. Uh, no, it's boring now, but it's Cheers and SNL and The Simpsons and, I don't know, who cares? Like, uh, everyone... <laughs> Everybody has said a bunch of stuff. <laughs> but uh, for the record, the reason that Jen and Megan are not allowed to sit next to each other in the writer's room is because when they do, everything grinds to a halt. Like, and, not, and not only does everything grind to a halt, but I personally am assaulted like, with like, uh, offensive jokes at my expense. And at a certain point, it just became like out of a sense of like, um, like it wasn't quite at the level of a thing you would talk about in therapy, but it felt like that, where it was like, I just need to like stand up for myself and to, just to like go, get through the day, and the only way I can think to do that is to physically separate them. And you have to admit, it made, a lot more yeah. gets done. Yeah. Yeah. The future is female, Mike. I know, I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying that me personally, I, I went home like sad every oh, that's day. That's fair, that's fair. Because of the things you would say Mike, about that's me. that's the nicest thing you've ever said. So us. Thank you so yeah. much. Thank you. To the rest of the writers, uh, is it good that Megan and Jen are separated? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I feel like if anyone, at, when they first heard that, was like, oh, that's 
weird, that's wrong. In about 10 minutes, you're gonna be like, no, I get it. <laughs> I, could they separate now? And then in like 12 minutes, someone from Vulture's gonna come out and move Jen down to where Ray is sitting. <laughs> Mike, where did the idea for The Good Place come from? <laughs> uh, I won't ask you that, uh, unless you have a, a, a great answer. Unless my answer has changed from the last right. 50 times you've asked me. <laughs> Fine. Um, <laughs> when assembling this team, what did you look for? Because I know that you didn't know everybody, right? Um, what knew, sort of questions uh, did you ask about their, uh, their history as writers, but also like their... You know, what would you ask your friends when you were asking about some of these guys? I knew many of these people from Parks and Recreation or otherwise. Ah, more than Mary Tyler Moore Show. Um, but the ones I didn't, um, I, 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 I read uh, stuff they wrote, obviously, but then I think I was most interested in, like, I, I hate the word, but I, it's diversity, but it's not ethnic diversity, it's like, um, it's like uh, intellectual diversity, I think. Like, I remember talking to Andrew about what he studied in college, um, and I remember talking to Ray about doing stand-up in New York, and like, there were, th there were enough of us who had worked together from Parks and Rec who were coming over to this show, where I was like, I know, I know exactly what that crew is, and I was just looking for things that were not what that crew is. Um, and that proved to be a pretty good uh, way to go about it, I think. I mean, it, um, there, there isn't a ton of, like the, the, the reason diversity is a, is a lame word is because it is used as a sort of catch-all to just mean people who aren't white. Um, but the intention of this kind of diversity was just like, was more, um, uh, I don't know what you would even call it. It was more like, um, it, it was sort of like intellectual background diversity or something. And that, uh, and cause the show is weird and we do a lot of weird stuff and we're constantly um, emailing each other, like listen to this podcast or like read this article that someone wrote. Um, like a, the guy who's the sort of phyllis, main philosophical advisor of the show is a professor from Clemson and Dan Schofield found him. Like we were talking about what happens to a person's sense of like moral um, uh, philosophy or ethical like worldview if that person is immortal and Dan like went out and found this guy who had written a book called Death about that exact thing it was like what happens if you're immortal do you care about ethics and we like read the book and then like I called him and we he ended up being like our main advisor guy so it, that is the result of having people who are just intellectually curious I think that's the way to I've now forget everything I just said throw that in the garbage <laughs> That was all, we'll that was all bad. That yep. was bad. We'll just edit this out. We, yeah, for sure. We're not live, right? We for, can edit this out? No. No one's here. It was, it's uh, intellectual curiosity is the way I would put it. Just people who are curious about the world in different ways. Okay, you can make your... You, in future, you can make your answers longer. Um, uh, how many of you have been on all three seasons? How many of you have been on uh, two seasons? Okay, and the, this is the first season for Ray and for Cassia, right? Um, for those of you, uh, I guess for all of you, for anyone, how does this writer's room differ from others that you've worked in? Um, it's the most pleasant one that I've been in by like a thousand times. <laughs> uh, what others have you been in? No. Uh, 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 um, how so? What, what's the difference? Um, uh, Mike is really tuned in to how everybody's feeling, like everybody's treated as important, everyone's listened to, and, you know, like he was saying, he's really assembled a, a team of people who are really different from each other and, like, have different kinds of feelings and are different at expressing themselves, but, like, is the glue that makes everyone cohesive and, like, it, it's a good place to be. 
Thanks, Dylan. <laughs> Did you finish licking my contract? Yeah. <laughs> I've never sat on couches before this writer's room, and I really like that. It's like <laughs> Talk about the layout of the writer's room. There are, there are a couple of different venues, right? Yeah, we have a, a couch area where we break stuff. Chairs. No, I'm just kidding. Um, the story. We like talk bigger picture ideas in the couch area, and then when we're writing, we sit in front of computer screens. But it's so nice just to like hang on a couch. I don't know. It feels like you get your creative juices going, and it feels less precious or something than being like at a board table. Think of the ugliest couches you yes. can think of, and then up that times a thousand, because yeah. they are the ugliest, beigeous couches. Yeah. And just to clarify, Jen and I aren't allowed to sit next to each other either <laughs> on, on the, couches. the couches, yeah, <laughs> or at the computer section. Yeah. So just for your mental map. Um, I moved to Los Angeles to write for this show, and I do not like this town, but. <laughs> It's okay, it's fine, it's fine. I'm here, I signed a list. Uh, But I've only had two good days in LA. And the the one of them was when we had a, um, that professor that uh, Mike was talking about come in and talk to us. I'm I'm a dropout from school, so I hadn't done learning like that in a long time. And it was just the most exciting kind of intellectual space I'd been in in a while and it was fun and everybody was brilliant and open and it's the best time I've had in a room I think and that was yeah really I cool. think going off that like this and like what Mike was saying about intellectual diversity it's like a, I've never before been so like academically challenged at a television show which is awesome and I think like we're all really especially in like what is going on in the world right now trying to find some like real what, meaning. what's going on in the world right now oh um the baseball just ended oh. there's a big world series um but just trying to find i think we're all trying to uh make a very funny show that also has uh both academic and real moral meaning to it and so it's very fun to go into work and like talk about papers that we all read i mean that's fun for me and i think for all of us i don't know if that's fun for and me. I, i've definitely read them yeah. Yeah. yeah i mean jen's wearing a leather jacket this girl doesn't care about homework there's no room for books on a harley baby and i would just like to add that when the rule about megan and jen not sitting together first came up the way that it happened was Jen moved to the other side of the table. So I was sitting at the head of the table and like Megan was here and Jen was here. And I realized I had totally screwed myself because then it was like a pincer movement. It was like crossfire coming at me and it was worse. So we had to literally move one of them down to the other end of the table. And now the person who sits at the other end of this long table is called, there's a name for it's, it. Yeah, the dark showrunner. The dark showrunner. It's, like oh it's like the evil underminer who sits at the opposite end of the table other than me and just tries to like destroy all of the work that's being done by all the other people. And that's usually where one of these two people is sitting. That's right. Yeah. Uh, did any of you have uh, backgrounds in philosophy prior to uh, doing this job? Uh, I think Mike sort of mentioned this, but I was a, a political philosophy major, which is the only time that that degree has ever helped. <laughs> 
Um, but when I met with him uh, for my interview, he was like, is there any chance you've ever read any philosophy? And I was like, oh, oh my God. Uh, yeah. Uh, and then he was like, cool, because, so I've been reading some Foucault, and so what do you think about that? And I was like, okay. Um, so I just, I flew in from New York. I'm very tired. And, uh, yeah. So... It would be a lot. Like, are there any of you for whom, like, that seemed daunting to be, uh, to go back into, you know, high school and college level stuff and have to do the homework? No yeah. One, you're yeah. Not, you're not going to admit that. You're not going to admit that. Uh, I, uh, I don't want to speak for anybody. You can all... Uh, you know who didn't read it. Well, no, the thing is, is that it, it paints this picture of us, like... Like, t- like taking long walks around like a college campus, like deeply engaged in conversation about it. We, we read like Wikipedia entries. Like it's not, you know what I mean? Like, like I, I, I don't want people to imagine that this is like a, an intensive, like graduate level course. We read, we, find, we mostly like listen to podcasts, we find articles, we find little things. Some, when, when we were starting the show, I put together like a packet of a bunch of stuff that I had read, but, and some of it was kind of arcane, but it was also like, um, the message that I was saying to everyone who was reading was like, I don't know if I understand this, but like this is, seems interesting. It's not. It's it's really not like this like super over the top thing, right? Am I, I, and it, no, totally. The- and it's it's also helpful, I think, because I often feel like Eleanor, at least in season one, trying to learn it and figure it. You know, and it, like we don't have, I don't anyway, a, like an incredible handle on it. We're yeah. all Eleanors. None yeah. of us is cheating. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Also, I, I've been doing this now for. 18 years, and it is refreshing to use your brain in a writer's room. It's like, mo- a lot of shows you're just making dumb poop jokes. What shows that's are those? That's cool, too. What shows are those? I am DB me, baby. <laughs> um, what are some of the swear, wor- swear word alternatives that we haven't heard or that won't make it? Oh, we just put in a one that we've never used. I just put it in in an episode that we're... Uh, it's in... Uh, I won't say what's happening. It's in 11, and it's Deckheads. Yeah. Well, I think there was one that Dylan pitched that I advocated for super hard that we, you wouldn't let us use. <laughs> it, was, it was Soak My Deck. Soak My Deck, Soak yeah. Soak My Deck. <laughs> Again, Dylan pitched it, not mine, but I felt passionate about it. Thank you, Jen. It's art. Uh, like Murray said, we get to use our brains, finally. <laughs> Such a beautiful thing. Uh, talk a little bit about, uh, we sometimes on the podcast hear reference to the candy bag, which are, what is the candy bag? Um, uh, Dylan, well, talk. As a way of illustrating the difference I was talking about before between other shows and the this terrible, one. The other terrible uh, shows. Other shows, they're there. called The Scrap Pile. And uh, in this show, it was The Candy Bag. And it's all the jokes that you wrote that didn't quite fit in, but you try to get them when you're on set and, and get alternate versions of lines and stuff. Yeah, like a good example is like in the Jacksonville episode this year, we did this whole run about Double Trouble, which is a combination body spray slash energy drink. <laughs> you both fit. You both fit. That was something from season one, right? Season yeah. one. Yeah, it was actually something from um, the audition sides for, yeah. for Jason Mendoza. And it was just a joke that we really liked and just got cut for time or whatever. And then, yeah, we pulled it out. Um, but also, like, the candy bag will have, like, um, like, there's a thing where they're like, 
it comes in three flavors, and one of them is like cedar wood melon blast or whatever. Like the candy bag will also have like eight other alts that like you can throw at the actors, you know, when when you're shooting. This show as as the candy bag isn't used as much, I would say, as some other shows because everything is kind of tightly scripted, and there aren't there. It, we're so concerned with getting the, the story as it's intended to be that we don't have a ton of time for that stuff. But when we do, it's great. That Jacksonville episode that Murray wrote. That, that was like insane because it was like we have this dumb guy on the show who, who's from Jacksonville and then we were like what if we do an episode where there's three of him <laughs> and so there were three dumb guys from Jacksonville and we just gave all of them a million Jacksonville jokes and it was endlessly delightful <laughs> Murray, Murray went off, we broke that episode and I knew Murray was the right guy to write it and I was like here, here's the outline or here's all the notes um, uh, Get, turn in the outline in two days and like a day and a half later he, he uh, sent me an email I was like so I just wrote the script and <laughs> he, it was, he I was wrote, in like a fugue state it was just like I like woke up and it was done and I was like you I was like you literally wrote it in like a day and a half he's like yeah I don't know take a look and I opened it and at the top it said open on exterior Randy Macho Man Savage non-international airport <laughs> Jacksonville and I was like oh yeah it's amazing like we're we're told we're shooting everything he wrote. <laughs> oh, wait, it was... I'm sorry. Randy Macho Man Savage non-international airport with the added note that the non had clearly been added later. <laughs> so the airport... Yeah, the it airport, was once. Well, at yeah. one point, they flew to Cuba or something. Yeah, direct to Colombia, probably. <laughs> yeah. Uh, speaking of that, I, I should have mentioned that there, we're going to talk and spoil anything that's aired so far, and I think we're safe within this room. When did you decide, when did you know that Donkey Doug was Jason Mendoza's Oh, man. All right, look. Listen. Listen. Every one of these writers is amazing and talented and wonderful, but it's Matt Murray again. So here's what <laughs> happened. Uh, we were like, okay, we want... We, we need Jason to, like, want to save somebody because we're at this point in the season where everyone's going to, like, try to save somebody, put them on the path to getting more good place points. And we wanted... We had never met Jason's parents, and so I was like, I feel like I want him to save his dad or something. And there was like... But he, all he talks about is Pillboy. He talks about Blake Bortles, and he talks about Pillboy, his friend, Pillboy. He's mentioned a couple other people, like some other guy, Donkey Doug, from his dance troupe a couple times. And then Murray said... Um, he was like... What if he says, uh, you know, I want to save my dad, and they say, why do you want to save your dad? We never hear you talk about him. And he says, what are you talking about? I talk about Donkey Doug all the time. <laughs> and I, this is not a joke. It caused me physical pain. <laughs> it was so awful, because the things that we had learned about, what did we learn about Donkey Doug to that point? He, they, he framed he, Sheila. He framed Sheila. He framed his, yeah. yes, yeah. that's for right. For boogie board theft? Yeah. For, yeah. Frame, for stealing boogie boards. Um, he was his best pop and locker. Yeah. He was in his dance. He was just, that's it. They'd he was... split crews and then he'd... Uh... Oh, that's yeah, he, he, he started a rival his... dance crew. Donkey Doug had left his dance crew, formed a rival crew, and then Jason <laughs> had gotten his dance crew to go meet them at night and slash all of their tires. <laughs> and so dead. that's dead. his dad. Yeah. And I, when Murray pitched that what if I, it is his dad is Donkey Doug, I grabbed my stomach and doubled over in pain like I had been punched. <laughs> and I still, to this day, it's one of the saddest things that anyone's ever pitched. Yeah. <laughs> it's so deeply sad. Because when we were talking about Jason's dad, we, the model we used was uh, Justin Bieber's father. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> because uh, oh it's like God. one of those dads that like is like, we're not, I'm not your dad, I'm like your bro. Yeah. Because um, there's a very famous Instagram photo of <laughs> naked Justin Bieber and 
His dad commented on the photo, what do you feed that thing? <laughs> That's real. That really happened in America. That happened to two humans in America. He's Canadian, but yeah. Whatever, it was in, his dad was in America. That's amazing that that just happened, by the way. Dan is the, Dan is the logic police on the show. Say... Um, but anyway, the point is, that was the sad, it's still to this day the saddest thing that's ever happened to me. I've, I'm not kidding, I've lost grandparents, I've, uh, I've witnessed, pers- I've had personal tragedies, but that moment is the saddest moment of my life. As soon as it happened, I, I remember very distinctly, you just looked into space and you said, oh no. <laughs> sad. It's so deeply, terribly sad. I'm having the same reaction right now. You did, you did double over a moment ago. Yeah. Um, I visited the writer's room a few times uh, against my will, and it's, uh, it's intimidating because uh, it, it's these minds and more that, that make up the room, um, and you just know that they uh, are working at a, on a different level. Um, talk a little bit about the culture of the room, though. Uh, it, on one hand, it seems like it's straight up the dorms. Like, it seems like it's just bits and couches and a lot of coffee. I asked Joe Mandy about it, and he mostly talked about being a barista. <laughs> um, but talk about uh, the hours that they're... Like, the, the basic makeup. What's a day uh, like in the writer's room? How much time is spent uh, working? Because it seems like not much. And... Uh, <laughs> And then, um, then, then a little bit about the culture of uh, kind of no jerks. I mean, I'll say the hours are some of the most civilized hours of any show I've ever worked on. And I've, I've worked on some pretty bad hour shows. Like what? <laughs> <laughs> IMD me, <meet> baby. <laughs> no, it's, it's for, for as heady and as like logically complicated as the show is, you would think we stay till all hours. But, but no, Mike's very courteous to our families, and uh, yeah, we, we're, not, we're not burning the midnight oil or anything. But what are the hours? When do you come in? 10, usually, and we're usually out before dinner oh, time. Oh, we're supposed to be there at 10? <laughs> <laughs> Leather jacket, <Yeah>. baby. <laughs> uh, five days a week, Monday through Friday? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the culture seems really uh, collegial. It seems like there's not a lot of ego. It doesn't seem like... I would guess that on other shows, there's more of a sense of the seniority in the room. Am I right about that? No one's going to answer that. I, right. I, I, I will say that, that uh, coming in, I came in uh, in the second season and I was incredibly intimidated because I was a huge fan of Parks and Rec and I was a huge fan of sort of so many of the other shows that these guys had worked on and I was terrified and I thought that, you know, it was going to be clicky and sort of people were going to be mean to me and it was like my, my uh, you know... Junior high. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I came in, and, and it was never like that. And it was, uh, I, I think that sort of something that, that is just overwhelming in the room is just a sense of kindness from everybody. Uh, these are some of the, the warmest, friendliest people that I've ever worked with. Um, and I think that, you know, other people can speak to, Dylan sounds like, can speak to rooms in which that is, <laughs> that is not the case necessarily. Um, and I think that, you know, it's, it's just sort of like truly a pleasure to come to work every day. Everybody is just so entirely friendly, and I think that comes from the, from the top down, in my experience. Yeah, Ray and I were new this year and immediately welcomed to use the girl blanket, which was like a huge... There's blankets that only the girls can use, and day one we were invited to just cuddle I mean, snuggle into Snuggle up the, in there, Cass. Yeah, and we did, and it, 
we truly felt welcome. <laughs> yeah, if anything, I'd say the room is maybe one degree too cold usually, so. And I have bought, we bought blankets at the Universal store. They're gorgeous, they're gorgeous if you're ever there, yeah. And we got them dry cleaned this year and they're even yeah. more sheeny than ever. It was like really important. One of the like first emails that they sent to Cassie and I were, was about this girl blanket. <laughs> and it was me and Jen being like, um, we're gonna show you the ropes. First of all, there's a girl blanket. <laughs> That's it. End of email. <laughs> it's really important because I'm super anemic, so I'm also girl code and cold, and then low hemoglobin cold. Yeah. And <laughs> Megan didn't know that, but she was ready for me, and I really appreciate it. That makes it. me feel so good. <laughs> And non-blanket related, I'd say, just to fill in your question. We also are, there's like a lot of writers on the show. We're often like working in two groups at once. So we'll have like one group breaking a story. One with you and one with Jen? Often. Yeah. Often. You know, it's funny. I never thought about it like that. But this is the most time I've ever spent with Megan. This Would you guys mind if we just catch up? And, um, but yes, yeah, so we'll have like a group breaking a story on the beige couches and then maybe another group working on a script at the computers. So just pound it out. That's not what, yeah. that's not what that means. That's not what that means. Uh, what? Uh, pound it out under the girl blanket. That's just... <laughs> all, all ages crowd. All ages crowd. Uh, Mike, the same thing holds true on set. Like everybody on set... Uh, we, I've made reference to this on the podcast. There's a podcast. You should uh, listen, <laughs> listen to the podcast. Uh, Numbers low the good, for the podcast? The good place, the podcast. Where can people get it? Uh, it's available where podcasts are available. Oh. Computers, I think. And is uh, there like a rotating host? Like different weeks? No, 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 no. One host. One, one host? host? Yeah, um, all-time host. Great must host. must be pretty good. It must be really Great good host. if he hosts every episode. Best host. Uh, <laughs> um, this, is, this is a fraction of why. <laughs> We're helping. Do you believe that? <laughs> um, you create a, a great culture. Everyone, uh, we've, uh, the reference I made to the podcast was that we've talked about very ambitious things on this show, including the episode Don't Let the Good Times Pass You By with a fairly enormous fight sequence that just took place. And I was there... <laughs> Thank you, I credit myself. The, um, on a day like that, on, uh, we shot that over a couple of days, several days maybe, and it should have been scary and panic-filled, and it's not, because you hire the best people, and you say to them, I'd like this to happen, and they look at the room and they go, okay, and they go and make that happen. Um, I've been asked on the internet why you are not teaching a college-level management class. <laughs> uh, well, there's several reasons, Mark. Um, <laughs> Start with the pay. Um, look, the, the truth of the matter is that the, the, the culture of the show was really nice and warm and friendly, and that was also true of Parks and Rec and other shows I've worked on, but that is not... Um, I, I don't... I wouldn't say that I should take the credit for that, frankly, because, the, for example, that I was never on set once, right, uh, for, the, for the fight. Actually, I went down. I went down to see everything the, at the very beginning, but... The reality is that that culture on the set is largely due to people like Morgan Sackett, who's the producer of the show, 
and the people that he found and hired who run the different departments, our costume department and our props department, all those departments, those people are all incredibly nice and talented and kind. And the director of that episode was Dean Holland, who directed, I think, 30 episodes of Parks and Rec, and I've known him for 10 years, and he's a lovely person. And so, uh, you know, the, it's not, it's never, whatever the culture of a show is, it's not one person who, uh, one, one bad apple or whatever, what's the phrase? One bad apple can spoil the something? Spoils. That's it, right? Yeah. Can spoil the something? Yeah. One bad apple can spoil Famous the something. Writer. It I sounded gorgeous, true. so yeah. I think that's Thanks. it. I think, like, if, um, let's, if you're making a show and, like, Charlie Sheen is, like, the star of the show, he can make everyone's life miserable, right? That's, <laughs> Wait, really? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but if you have one, like, nice person, that doesn't necessarily mean that the whole show is going to be nice. It takes a sort of concerted effort by all of the people who work on the show and any level of sort of management or supervision, and that's what we have, and that really starts with, that's, that's a lot about Morgan Sackett, who's not here. I don't know why I'm praising him. He can't <laughs> hear me. It's his birthday. And I would also say Kristen Bell and Ted Danson. Oh, yeah, that's the other thing. <laughs> Ted Danson, world's nicest living human being. I sometimes get a phone call uh, in the, late in the afternoon, and I'll see my phone, and I'll say, Ted Danson, and I'll have a panic attack, and he's calling me to say that he had a really fun time at work today. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> It's insane. It's crazy. Because the truth is, is that the answer to the question that Mark asked first about why I'm a writer is cheers. The answer is cheers for me personally. And so when I see Ted Dance is calling me, I think it's a prank and, uh, first. And then I think, oh, no, he's furious and he's quitting. And really, it's, he's calling me to tell me that he had fun at work. That's not a thing you have to do if you're Ted Danson. You can get away with not calling people and saying that you had fun. You don't have to do that. But he does it because he's like a, the world's nicest person and the same is true of Kristen. Like, they're just lovely people. The whole cast is, everybody. Manny Jacinto uh, is, like the, is like the sweetest... Like I, it's like uh, uh, I don't know how to just how do you describe? It's what gross. Manny, it's, it's gross. It's he's disgusting. Yes, so nice. yeah, it's, <laughs> it's awful. It's really awful. It ma- he's he's nice at a level that it makes you realize how terrible you are. Right? <laughs> That's the only way to say it. And the same, it, it, everyone in the cast—they're all incredibly nice people. So that culture of the show is—it's a, a giant group effort. I'll say. Do you have questions? Yeah. All right. Uh, we have microphone runners coming out, uh, so raise your hands and make yourselves known, those of you who have questions. In the meantime, uh, I will ask this, just as kind of a general thing, what would any of you offer as uh, something you wish you had known to any as- aspiring writers in the crowd? Uh, what is something that you wish you knew maybe 10 years ago? Kind of know everything. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. From those bad shows? Um, I, I'll go ahead and... Can I field this one? You may. Uh, okay. Um, actually, this goes out to a lot of people of color, I think, um, being <gasps> one. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> um, I, I, I would say... If I could tell my younger self something, it would be, it's okay if you're not ready for something. You know, like, I think it's amazing that um, there are diversity efforts and that people are actively seeking out um, young, diverse writers who have something to offer. Um, And it's very hard when you're that young to say, I'm not ready for this audition, or I don't think I would be able to handle this job, or whatever. And um, there were, if I could go back in time, I would say to give myself the option to say, 
I'm just not ready for that right now, and I'm going to make a fool of myself, because I did make a fool of myself <laughs> several times. And, um, and I, I think that um, it's important because um, when you are young and hungry and feel like you're not represented, it can often feel like you don't have any option but to take whatever scraps you're given. And um, yeah, be kind to yourself and don't um, feel like you have to do that. I would, I, would, I would piggyback on that and just say that uh, also, Hollywood is getting better about it, but also sort of like directed more toward women and people of color. The understanding that your stories are valid and the things that you want to write are valid. I think that um, a lot, oftentimes we trick ourselves into thinking that like our stories aren't, aren't the ones that should be told and there's not an audience for it. Or, so you sort of take yourself out of the game, but understanding that what you have to say and the stories that you want to tell are valid and there is an audience for it. So, I mean, give it a shot. I, I think that a lot of us sort of tend to think that, you know, the things that Louis C.K. has to say or the things that Colin Jost has to say are sort of like the typical, what you, what you think of sort of like as the typical comedy writer, the things that they have to say are going to sort of be more marketable or more important to people than, than what you have to say, and I think that that's not the case. Excellent. First question, please. Just uh, from season one to season two and then even season three, it feels like you've burned through so many versions of the show and just sort of what's happening. So I was wondering, what were, are there versions of the show that you wish you got to spend more time writing or what's been your favorite part of getting to sort of reinvent it? I mean, I think that you're right that we have burned through plot pretty quickly. And to me, there's really no place that I wish we had stayed longer. Early on season one, I think Mike gave a mandate which was super helpful, which was like, let's just get to things quicker. Let's not, like, if we know there's something exciting, let's get there and challenge ourselves then to keep going and think of what it could be beyond there, which has been both a very, like, exciting exercise in writing sitcoms, because that's not normally how sitcoms are. Um, so from, I think for me, it's been fun and just a good challenge. And it's, it's, I don't wish we had stayed anywhere longer because I'm always excited about where we're going next. And to blow the smoke up the butts of the people who watch the show, it's like everyone is extremely smart and like people have learned how to watch TV in a way that is so incredible to me because like everyone is so diligent and observant. And I think some of the fun we have is trying to stay ahead of the very smart people who are watching our show and to constantly try to trick in some ways and like surprise the people watching it. So rather than like wanting to linger on something, the fun becomes when you know that something crazy is gonna happen and hopefully it lands and people are surprised. Excellent, thank you. Next question. I, I was wondering if you could just, it, it feels like each season has like a different philosophical question it's kind of addressing. And I was just sort of wondering if you could talk about like how when you're breaking the season, you sort of decide like, okay, this is what we're gonna sort of ask this season. That sort of comes a little organically, I think, out of the discussion that we have at the beginning of the year. I mean, we've also, because we knew the whole first season before we even started writing it, we were able to talk about season two while we were writing season one. And so by the time we got to the end, we kind of knew what season two was a little bit. We knew that it was about uh, getting Michael on their team, like Michael failing a bunch of times and him sort of defecting and like a little bit of a spy double agent story and, and then him slowly realizing that maybe 
the point system was unfair and stuff like that. So we're, we're able to kind of like know a year in advance what the general idea of what season, the next season is going to be. So it happens a little bit uh, sort of organically. And then it also happens because, again, people are like poking around and like look, finding articles and podcasts and stuff and says like, this is an interesting thing. This sort of affects our show. Um, someone sent, I don't even remember who sent me a cool article about like why Aristotle is really relevant today, like a magazine article. And I uh, read the whole thing halfway through the year and was like, oh, this is really meaningful. I mean, when I say I read the whole thing, I read like six pages. It was really long. But, um, but, so uh, Dan sent it. it yeah, was Dan probably Dan. It. Was it? It was, was me. It? There you go. Uh, <laughs> it's usually Dan. Um, but uh, so it, it, it's not like... I, uh, we right now have an idea of what season four is in a very, very general way. Go on. No. And, uh, and so the, the trick is to like have some juicy ideas and then go into the season and get the whole brain trust together and start talking about it, but not to sort of decide too early because if someone has a better idea, we always want to follow that better idea. So it's sort of like, it's like, um, it's, it's, having stuff to hold on to, but also being willing to sort of risk throwing it all away if someone comes up with something better. It's a dicey proposition for a show like this, but again, we've been a year ahead every year, um, or at least half a year ahead, so it makes it more possible. Like, we'll get together in a couple weeks, really, long before the, this season ends airing. We'll get together for a couple days and, like, talk big picture stuff about next year, and, um, and uh, uh, that'll begin that process. Is there a next year? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I assume. If they cancel us now, I would be really pissed. <laughs> that would be terrible. Yeah, I guess they haven't picked us up yet. God damn it. All right. <laughs> is it true that the working title of season four is The Sean Chronicles? <laughs> uh, next question, please. Wait, I just want to say one thing. Okay. I'm not going to say what it is, but uh, the best joke we did all year, I was talking about this backstage, the best joke we did all year is a joke that Mark gets to deliver. Uh, it's in the 12th episode there's a moment at which, and I won't say anything. This won't what are you doing? I'm just what saying, are you doing? I just want everyone. I'm just so excited about it. I'm so excited about it. It's my favorite I'm, joke. My heart is pounding. Uh, you'll know it. You'll know it when you see it. It's a joke Mark gets to deliver. He arrives in a place unexpectedly, and he delivers a joke, and it's my favorite joke of the whole year. And I'm really excited about it. It won't air for like a month and a half. You're gonna all forget that this ever happened. <laughs> Please. Jesse here. One second. Uh, so Mark's character doesn't arrive somewhere unexpectedly in episode 12, so we think he means this joke from episode 11. And the turtle makes a bet with Ronda Rousey, and if she loses, she has to bow. Come on! It's just in the middle of torturing William Shakespeare by describing the plot to the Entourage movie. What is this? The new information is coming. <laughs> yes, next question. My question is actually about favorite jokes. I'm just wondering, when you look back on the last three seasons, what's your favorite joke that still kind of cracks you up that either you or a coworker are responsible for? Great question. question. You mean from the show or like a thing somebody said in the room? (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, anything, literally anything. The thing that I've laughed hardest at in the moment watching the show this year is a joke that Josh pitched and it's when Ted Danson says that he loves to sit on the toilet and shoot one out. A demon trying to approximate a Sit human. on the thing and shoot Sit one on out. Sit on the thing and yeah. shoot one Sit out. On yeah. the thing. Write what you know. That's what they say. You know? uh, I, there's a joke. I, I really think it was Cassia, and I think about it all the time. And it was in the Jacksonville episode where Tahani 
pauses in fear and says, in addition to all the other things that have been happening, also, I've seen a lot of dog hair and I haven't seen a dog. That was um, <laughs> I love that joke so much. I, don't, I didn't say it. Are you sure? I'm who positive. said it? Sorry, I don't know. guys. Who, who said it? I don't know. It's how do bad you not to take know? credit if you didn't Ka- say it. Cassia, you How do you said not it? know and how hasn't one of you just taken credit for it right Cassia, now? Cassia, take credit for it. It was yes. Cassia. Remember, we all remember yeah, it was yeah, Cassia. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a... It's not quite a f- joke so much, but... Uh, so the Jeremy Baramy thing happened in the room in part because I am a lot less smart than these people. And so... Mike was trying to explain time, and I didn't get it for a full afternoon. <laughs> and I kept, and I, like, I'm the n- new on the staff, I'm the least experienced, and I'm boldly, like, interrupting their ability to tell a story because I don't understand how time works. And Josh just was like, what about Jeremy Bear Me? That's how you explain the time. And so uh, when, when Chidi says, the, uh, the dot on the eye is what like, broke my brain or whatever, that's actually what happened in the room. <laughs> that, what happened to Chidi's brain there happened to my brain. Ray's wow. being, she's being modest because what was happening was she was like, well, how can, she was saying, how can time, events be happening on Earth, but like they're not happening in the afterlife? And we were like, well, we're trying to say that this, and, and she was like, yeah, but that doesn't make any sense. And she was totally right. And so we were, we were searching for a way to pithily explain, to, to answer all of the natural questions that would come up. And then Josh giggled out loud. He actually giggled at his own thought. And, uh, which is very rare. And he was like, what if Michael just says that the timeline is it's Jeremy Baramy? And it, it was another one of those things where, like, we could have pitched, the entire room could have pitched for two weeks of, of solutions to explain what we need to explain, and it, nothing would have beaten Jeremy. It saved us so much time. <laughs> because it's like, it's basically a middle finger, right? It's like... <laughs> Do you have a problem with the way that you think time works? Too bad. Like, I don't know what to tell you. And it was such a quick solve, too. Because I'd been, like... I was sitting there, like... I was like, Mike, I'm sorry. I don't mean to be annoying, but I just don't get it. And and Josh was just like, how about this? And it was great. Everybody's being very nice in a way that suggests I'm dying or something. (laughs) But... But I will say this. You know how time is infinite? Your time, sadly, is not. You're the upper line. This is the way I want to learn about that. Um, What's so great about this room, about every person in this room, is that you can laugh at your own dumb thing and you say it. And I believe what I first said was, Jeremy, Jeremy. And then people are like, no, there's, well, there's got to be a B. Everyone got it right away. And then there's got to be a B in there. And then someone over here said, like, well, there has to be an I in it, because then we're really in trouble <laughs> for what that dot over the I is. And then Megan goes off with it and writes all this funny stuff about Janet's birthday and uh, that it's also, t- it's Tuesdays in July and never. I mean, just, you know, everyone gets to hang out with an idea. And, and then really the great lucky. thing is then you, then all that group work happens and then Megan writes this great script and then we give it to Ted Danson. That was, and then he goes, and he has a moment where he goes, so you get it. 
It's just like, that's, it's like, that's when it couldn't work out any better. Is it true that, that uh, what we see on screen is an approximation of Joe Mandy's handwriting of yeah, that Yeah, we word? spent more time probably writing versions of the name Jeremy Baramy than any other thing. And then we, Joe's a very talented artist, and he, we had him do it. But like, there was like a really serious session where Joe Mandy had like a Sharpie and was all these giant poster boards, and he was doing this very like... Well, we were all working. He was writing he, Jeremy yeah, Barry yeah. over and over again. Yeah. And then he would hold it up, and we would go, hmm, yes, maybe perhaps a little squigglier on the B or whatever. <laughs> and then he would do it again. He did it like 500 times. Yeah. But yeah, that, the one you see is actually his handwriting, or his uh, work, or whatever you call it. And he's not here because he's retired on those residuals? That's right. That, yeah. uh-huh. <laughs> uh, maybe one or two more questions, please. Uh, so, I really love that everyone in hell is just like a petty douchebag. Is that based on just true encounters? Where do you draw that from? You guys don't know Joe Mandy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, it's funnier than like if they were really like evil demons who were like you know, hedonistically ripping people's eyelids off and stuff. Like, that doesn't sound that funny. I mean, to me, a lot of the... Like, there was an episode that Dak Shepard guest starred in where they were actually in the bad place, and there was, like, a group of dudes who uh, worked in the toxic masculinity department. <laughs> and, uh, and, like, I would say for me personally, if there's a hell and I go there, it'll be those dudes. Like, those will be the dudes. So, Do you two like, think, like, ball taps are really funny? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've got, like, four Bluetooth headsets in at all times. And, like, yeah, like, that. I, I just... I, it's a combination of, like, it's just funnier, but also, like... I don't know. I, it's... Uh, I, I, we never said that... We've never... Um, there's a couple of rules on the show in terms of how we show actual, like, the bad place. Like, no kids, that's too depressing and sad. Um, and no, like, actual physical anguish. And, and I think that keeps the show from, des- like, devolving into some weird meditation on, like, human pain. It's much better to show, like, toxic masculinity dudes who are just annoying because I think for, at least for me, I'll say it, like that, it would be what hell really is. Just a bunch of those dudes wearing like no fear shirts and like, <laughs> what, uh, what, you wrote Murray, Murray wrote, oh, the one guy was kicked off of Rob Gonkowski's party cruise for throwing a, a lobster at a stripper. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> then he died doing a keg stand in the back of a Jeep Wrangler. That's right. Yeah. Total Lord is Total how Lord. he's described. Yeah. That's that, my personal vision of hell. That happened in my high school. Uh, <laughs> Uh, what philosophical questions have either uh, caused any of you internal suffering or division <laughs> or, or have divided the room very strongly? And has that had any implications for the show, for the characters? Dan remembers. <laughs> I don't know that there's been any, like, like loud, vehement philosophical arguments, right? Like... <laughs> I will say that, uh, oh, the free will versus determinism thing. So we wrote the episode eight that aired was free will versus determinism, and and none of us understood it, and we kept (laughs) reading about it, and we were like, we sort of get it, but it's also, uh, very few people have written about it because there's sort of not that much to say. It's like, either we have free will or we don't, and if we don't, then we don't, and if we do, then great. Like, it's sort of boring, (laughs) but we we kept reading about it, and eventually what happens in the episode is Eleanor is, like, arguing about 
how everything is deterministic in the universe, uh, there's no free will. Eventually what happens is, is uh, Michael just picks up a giant iced tea and dumps it over her head because that's how we felt like while reading about it. It was like, I, this sucks. Like, this is a terrible, it's boring. And if you are the kind of person who gets like super into arguing that the whole world is deterministic, someone should dump an iced tea over your head, right? <laughs> that's kind of like, uh, but again, I don't, do you guys remember anything that was like a fight? I don't feel like, it's not like we're split down the middle between like, Kantian and like uh, and Bentham fans or something like, right? Bentham for life. <laughs> we should get um, like soccer jerseys that have like team deontology on the back. We have time for one last question. Uh, if a real good place actually exists, what do you hope is in it for you all? And can I please have a Janet in mine? <laughs> <laughs> Um, boy, I don't know. Just gotta have my girl. Just <laughs> wait for me. <laughs> it's us sitting together and Mike having to watch. Yeah, it's basically, it's that's this right now. Yeah. yeah. Welcome. That, that's for a specific scenario in which you two get into the good place and I get into the bad place. <laughs> and, the, and the two realms are like, oh my God, we can do two birds with one stone. And we just design this one thing and then everybody... <laughs> I want to hear Encel. Encel, what's your good place? Oh, my good base is like just like the NBA League Pass all day. I think <laughs> just a bunch of screens. I can see it all. And I never get bored. You're, you're still like a fly. Fan? You're like a fly. You have like 50 eyeballs and you yeah. can see and watch every NBA game at the same time. It's glorious. I think, a, I think someone should guess someone else's good place. Ooh, I like that. That's such oh, yeah. Everyone's feelings are going to get hurt. <laughs> Real bad. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> uh, yeah, wait, wait, maybe Dylan or Josh should guess the other's good place. Oh, yeah, that they're, makes they're sense. Writing, oh, that's a good one. writing partners for 20 years. They're basically married. It would be too depressing for me. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the next episode of The Good Place airs on Thursday, December 6th at 8.30, 7.30 Central. Please join me in thanking Ray Sani, Christopher Ensel, Andrew Law, Dan Schofield, Cassia Miller, Cord Jefferson, Matt Murray, Dylan Morgan, Josh Siegel, Jen Statsky, sitting next to her, Megan Amram, and Mike Shure. That's it for another episode of Good One. The Good Place airs on NBC. You can catch up on The Good Place on Hulu or Netflix. Good One is produced by Mike Comite. Justin D. Wright did our theme song. Rate review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. And hey, if you know anyone who might like the podcast, what the heck, maybe tell them. You can email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. We'll be back next week with a new episode and a new joke. Have a good one. That was a HeadGum Podcast.